I thank you guys for giving generously and giving consistently. Things are still pretty tight as far as our budget goes, so it's really appreciated. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to bless this offering, that you multiply it, and that you'd use it to bring glory to your name and advance your kingdom. Amen? Baskets go, will go around shortly. If you want to make out a check, you can make it out to the bridge. Just a reminder, our lease is up here in July. And um, I think it would be awesome if we had a new place to go to. I feel like it's kind of time for that. So um, we've had a few people um, bring uh, places to my attention that you know, maybe we could use in the future as a church facility. Um, if you guys would just keep your eyes open and let me know if you see anything interesting, that would be great. We have some uh, usual activities this week. Prayer at Jimmy's, uh, Tuesday at 10 a.m. We have dream interpretation at the Spoon Coffee House at 7 p.m. Food Pantry at 6 on Wednesday. Marisa's Small Group at 7.30. Um, we finished up the uh, He Loves Me Book Club last Thursday night. We're going to take a, a couple of weeks off. But starting March 24th, a Thursday night, 8 o'clock at my house, we will have a new book club. Uh, we'll be doing a novel this time called Blessed Child by Ted Decker. Great book. Um, if you want the book, I should have some copies available for sale next week. I think they're about 12 bucks each. Um, or you can order your own copy on Amazon.com. It's Blessed Child by Ted Decker. Uh, the youth group will be meeting on Sunday afternoons, March 13th and 20th. They'll be doing worship with Tim and Candace after service. And on Saturday night, uh, 7.30, March 26th with Lori. We could use some help cleaning up the church. There's a sign-up sheet by the coffee bar if you wouldn't mind signing up. And um, hopefully snow is behind us. I'd be really happy for us to have no more snow uh, this year. Uh, that would be awesome by my estimation. But if we do have a Saturday night snowstorm, check the website, thebridgelongisland.com, and I'll, I'll have something posted on there about whether or not we'll, um, we'll be having a service. I miss any announcements? Okay, if you have a Bible with you, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to continue my series today, uh, Live by the Spirit. This will be my seventh message in that series. When I started out, we looked at Zechariah 4, 6. It says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. There are two rejected methods, one embraced method in that verse. The two rejected methods were might and power, earthly, human, might and power. But there is a method that is employed by God, by my spirit. I want us to be a people who learn to live by the spirit. I think it's our incredible great advantage in a crazy world is that we can live by the Spirit of God. So my heart has been to exhort you to that end. In the second message, we looked at Galatians 5.16 where it says, So I say live by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I think this is a season of time for us to experiment and to explore and to practice living by the Spirit. The other thing to take note of in that verse is this. It says, live by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Do you notice this, the um, order of that? First you live by the Spirit, then you don't gratify the desires of the flesh, the sinful nature. Most of us, don't we have that in reverse? 
We think if I could just discipline the sinful fleshly desires, then maybe I could live by the Spirit. Well, actually, the Scripture says the opposite. Put your focus on living for Him, and it will turn away. It will lessen, it will dampen your appetite for sinful things. Third week, we looked at the difference between faith and fact. We took a look at John chapter 9, the man born blind. And uh, we uh, paralleled that to a movie clip with Jodie Foster, an old movie called Contact, where the main character, this scientist who's used to living by empirical evidence, what she can taste and touch and smell and measure and, and weigh, has an experience, an unexplainable, supernatural, beyond the normal experience, and it changes her. It radically changes her. And that's the difference of the life of faith. And this is what we're offered by pe as people who are called to live by the Spirit, is that we can have an experiential relationship with God. And when we do that, we're no longer subject to, we're no longer limited by empirical evidence, by the facts alone. This is a good thing. Fourth message, we looked at Galatians 5, 25, it says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And I told you that there's a responsibility to freedom. And that's to remain free. And I gave you also in that message some practical tips to seeing in the Spirit and what it's like to actually have a vision and how to stay in the vision. Last week, Actually, two weeks ago, we looked at John 14, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I'm doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And we asked and answered five questions concerning that verse. Who's Jesus talking to? What do the words, I tell you the truth? Or as the old King James Version of the Bible would say, verily, verily. What does that mean? When Jesus says that. We looked at what the scripture says about what Jesus actually had been doing. If he said we'd do greater things, it'd be nice to know what he was doing. We defined the word greater in verse 12. And we took a look at practical and practical terms. What would our doing even greater things than these look like in our lives? And I said that we would at least be doing, if we're going to do greater things, we'll at least do what Jesus did. I said that we would be a people who live love. And we'd be a people who live supernatural lives in the power of the Spirit. It would include at least those things. You can add to that list. And last week, continuing the series on Live by the Spirit, we took a look at 1 Corinthians 12.7, which says, Now to each one a manifestation of the Spirit was given. Why? for the common good. And we broke that verse down into four parts. To each one. To each one is given. This is not exclusive invitation. This is an inclusive invitation. Everybody gets to play. To every person is given a manifestation of the Spirit. It's not for some super-Christians only. It's not for the pastor only, or the prophet only, or the itinerant minister only. Everyone gets to participate. And to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit. We looked at Spirit 
We've seen that that is the pneuma of God, the, the same root Greek word that we get the term pneumatic. It has to do with the breath of God, the air of God. It's a term that's used over 230 times in the New Testament as a reference to the third member of the Trinity, the Godhead. The Father, Son, it refers to the Spirit, the pneuma of God. We looked at manifestation. What, is it, what does manifestation mean? I gave you a, a definition that I heard from John Wimber years ago. And he breaks it down into two parts. Manny, meaning hand. And festation. Coming from the term meaning festival. And then a manifestation is the dancing hand of God. And when there's a manifestation of the Spirit among a body of people, it's like the hand of God dances around the room. And he touches di different people. And he manifests his spirit in our midst. And it's done for the common good. God does this for us, not to exalt one person over another, but that we all might benefit. And the analogy I gave you last week that, that we could identify with better than most groups is think of a potluck dinner. When we have a potluck together, everybody brings something, right? Everything's brought to the table, and man, oh man, when it's all together, do we throw some kind of meal? That's what a manifestation of the Spirit to each one is given. A manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We each bring our peace to the table, and then we all get to partake of it together, and it's a celebration for everybody. That's a picture. Our potluck dinners that we do here, maybe a couple of times a year, that is a wonderful word picture of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, verse 7. And I ended it with, with a question from the, from the old Westminster Catechism. Maybe some of, the, some of you are old enough to remember this from your childhood. The first question of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? I won't even ask anybody to raise hands and see who recognizes us. Yeah. And it says to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What does it mean to enjoy God? The word enjoy, according to Webster's Dictionary, is to have for one's benefit, for one's use, to take pleasure in, to have satisfaction in. It means to experience. When they said, when these early church fathers said, what is the chief end of man? Part of the answer is that we would be a people who have experience with God. Intimate, personal experience with him. I think it actually means that one of our primary purposes, one of the main reasons why we exist, was to experience and take pleasure in God. And, and if that's not happening for us, then we're getting a raw deal. There's, there's more available. There's, there's better offered to us. And so today, in my seventh message on this series, Living by the Spirit, probably my last in the series, unless God edits this week, um, I want to take um, a look at what we have been given in the Spirit and what we've not been given in the Spirit. And I want to do that by uh, taking a look at 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 7. But 
If you have your Bible open with me, uh, why don't you follow along as I begin reading verse 3. And Timothy says, I thank God. I'm going to be using the, the New King James Version today. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers day and night, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that's in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded, I am persuaded, is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the word, for the power that's in your word. I ask that you use me today, that you use me to communicate your truth to your people in a way that's impacting, that brings forth change, that's life-changing for them. Amen? So, I've told you guys how, um, for the last four years, beginning on February 11th each year, God shows me things. And I go through these 40-day seasons where he gives me visions. And, um, and that has, it, it started in 2008 and, and continued again this year. And it's been wonderful. This year has been different than some of the other years. It's been very intimate. It's been very tender. It's been a very loving uh, time between me and our Heavenly Father. And I, I want to tell you a story about uh, something that he's shown me. And this is what I saw this morning. So over the years, in these visions, I get to see these spiritual visions. It's as if, it's as if God takes me to a place. And the place that he's taking me to this year, I've been to before. Except this year, I've gone back to the same place again and again and again. And it's a place that I call the library. I don't know how else to refer to it. And it's not a very big room. It's not a whole lot bigger than, than my office down the hall. But it's a circular room. And it has very high ceiling. Matter of fact, I've never seen the top of the ceiling. And it's a place where I get to meet with our Heavenly Father. Actually, it's a place where I get to meet with the Trinity. And this is what the room looks like. I think it's a place that he's created just for me. And so in this room, there are two really nice, overstuffed leather chairs, extremely comfortable. And the Heavenly Father sits in one, and I sit in the other. Sometimes there's a, a table between us. Sometimes there's coffee on that table. And we get to enjoy time together. Across from the chairs is a beautiful, large a fireplace, incredible mantle, um, intricately carved mantle. And surrounding us on these circular walls is bookcases. That's why I call it the library. There's just as high as I could go, and the, and the shelves are just packed with beautiful volumes of old books. 
And the reason why I say this is where I meet with the Trinity, because all three aspects of the Godhead are represented. The Father's Papa is sitting with me. And the fire across from us is the Holy Spirit. And the volumes that surround us are the Word, Jesus, the Word of God. And it's just been a wonderful, uh, intimate time where he shows me different things uh, in this place. And so this morning, as I prayed, um, something new caught my attention in the library I'd never seen before. To the left of the fireplace, there were the, the typical tools that you would see for a fireplace, a poker and some tongs and uh, one of those little billows things, right? And uh, the little, little brush and a little shovel to pick up the ash. And, and I, I remember thinking to myself, I never noticed those there before. And I wonder why, if the fire in the fireplace is the Holy Spirit, why would you need to stoke that fire, you know? And as often is the case, before I could even ask the question, just with the thought of it, Papa answers the question for me. He says, those tools aren't to stoke the Spirit's fire. They're to stoke your fire. I was like, oh, okay. And then he looks at me. The Father looks at me. And he points with his, his uh, left hand and his index finger, and he begins to just spin his index finger like this. And as he does, I could see the, I could see the inner workings of my heart. And he's spinning the inside of my heart. And I could see that initially it just looked like ash. It looked like just extinguished ash. And as he began to spin with his finger, he began to stir up that ash, and I was surprised to see that there, there was some, there was still some embers with spark on them uh, in that ash, and it began to swirl. And after he stirred up the ash for a little while, um, he blew on it, and very quickly this, this ash became flame. And not long after that, the flame. Um, I don't know how else to describe it. It became like a tornado, a hurricane, a fire within my heart that quickly engulfed my whole being. But it wasn't a consuming fire. It was, um, it was a purifying. It was a cleansing fire. And I could look. I remember one point looking down at myself, and I could see, like, my whole body kind of looked like, like shiny metal, as if dross had just like melted off of it. I remember thinking, hey, I look kind of thin. <laughs> and I look like I'm in good shape. It's like 30 years of it taken off. I'm thinking, hey, I like this, you know. And, um, and what the Lord told me was that what he was doing is he was stirring up old callings and old passions uh, in my heart. And that because these are things that I would need again. And um. And honestly, this is nowhere in my notes. I had this experience this morning. I prepared this sermon yesterday, forgetting that 2 Timothy verse 6, I'm going to preach on verse 7, 2 Timothy verse 6 says, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hand. This is Paul writing to Timothy. And I want to remind you today, because I think what he's done for me, it's not just for me. He's no respecter of persons. It's for you as well. That in your heart, there are old callings. There are, there are old passions that have been well used. 
It's not that they've died, is they served their purpose. But those embers still exist. And with the stirring them up, God can fan into flame uh, once, what once existed. So I want to give you hope today. I want to encourage you, as, as God's encouraged me, there's still fire in there. There's still fire in there. Maybe when we end today, we'll pray that God will literally, with the laying on of hands, stir up the passions in your heart. So, back to um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. I'm thinking, if we're going to be a people who live by the Spirit, it would be good for us to know what God has and what he has not given us by his Spirit. So let's give a little context of the, of the letter. According to David Guzik's study guide on 2 Timothy, after Paul was released from Roman imprisonment, uh, the one mentioned at the end of the book of Acts, he enjoyed a few more years of freedom. That was until he was rearrested and imprisoned in Rome again. Matter of fact, you can even go to Rome today, this very day, and see the place, at least where they say uh, Paul had been imprisoned. It's actually a cold <laughs> dungeon. Nothing really much more than a, a cave in the ground that has bare walls and there's a hole in the ceiling. That's how they would get the food uh, passed down to him. There's no windows. It's just a small cell that I can only imagine would have been especially uncomfortable uh, in winter seasons. Paul writes this letter to Timothy uh, from this from this imprisonment. And he knows that he's soon to be condemned and executed in Rome. Paul senses that this time's at hand. and So he writes to Timothy, this second letter. Um, it's not only the last letter that we have from Paul, there's also a note of urgency and passion um, that we might expect from, him, from a man uh, who's on death row. So, so let's break down um, this verse. Like we broke down um, verse from Corinthians last week. Let's break down this verse from Timothy. Let's take a look first at what God has not given us. For God has, n has not given us a spirit of fear, Paul writes, but of power and of love and a sound mind. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. What's he not given us? He's not given us a spirit of fear. So... <laughs> If there's, if there's an overwhelming, overriding fear in your life concerning anything, you can just take this one verse and, and know for yourself that wherever that's come from, <laughs> it's not come from God. There could be any kind of genesis from it. It could be coming from a whole variety of different places, but God's not one of them. He's not giving you a spirit of fear. And the word fear here literally means timidity or fearfulness or cowardice. According to uh, Clark's commentary on the Bible, some translations replace the word fear, get this, with servitude or bondage. God has not given us a spirit of slavery. He's not given us a spirit of bondage. Resonates so well with what Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 1. One of my favorite verses. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to a yoke of fear. <laughs> Do not submit again to a yoke 
of slavery. He has set us free. God's given us lots of things. There's much he wants to stir up in our heart, but the spirit of fear is not from him. We're not to have the fear of man. I've been a pastor a long time. I know a lot of pastors. I can remember, especially back in, in Washington State, there were so many pastors in that town that were crippled by the fear of man. They were so afraid of what people would say. They were so they were terrified that if they said something offensive, people would leave their church. And because they were under that fear, <laughs> they pastored their people with that fear. They would utilize tools like manipulation and intimidation and domination and control. And all of those, because they were under a spirit of fear, they operated out of a spirit of fear. Does that make sense? That's not God. These are not the tools of God's kingdom. I'm not sure which comes first, the chicken and the egg. Because they're under the fear of man, they use fear-based tools, or is it because they use fear-based tools that they live under the fear of man? I don't know. It, but it's a vicious cycle, that one that feeds the other. And it's not at all what God intended. Could it be that pastors are reaping what they've sown? I think so. Could it be that our people are reaping what pastors have sown? I can only pray that God have mercy. God's not given us a spirit of fear. He's not given us a spirit of fear of man, and he's not given us a spirit of fear of circumstances. Case in point, Paul's circumstances as he's writing this letter. He's in prison, <laughs> you know? And he's not in an American prison. They're not feeding him every day. He doesn't have a lawyer, okay? He's in a hole in the ground. And they're passing him food through a hole. I can only imagine how horrific those conditions were. He's not in fear of his circumstances. And in your case, God's not giving you a spirit of fear that you should be afraid of your circumstances, whatever they might be. Economy's tough at this time. It's tough all over. It's tough on Long Island. God's not giving you a spirit of fear concerning your finances. He's not giving you a spirit of fear concerning relational issues or emotional issues. He's not giving you a spirit of fear of fill-in-the-blank. Whatever it is, fear is not something that he's giving you a spirit to address it with. He's not giving you a spirit of fear of man, of circumstances, or of the demonic. Scripture tells us that the one who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. That the spirit that's in us is greater than any demonic spirits, any evil spirits, including a spirit of fear. He's not giving us a spirit of fear of man, of circumstances, of the demonic, or of punishment. Please, listen to this. He's not giving us a spirit of fear of punishment. That's not what God's done. 1 John 4, 18 says, there is no fear in love. Why? Because perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. 
He's not given us a spirit of fear of punishment. The word of God can't be any more clear. God is love. And we see later on in this verse that what he has given us is a spirit of love. And there's no fear in love. And there's no fear because there's no punishment. Can you wrap your head around that? Holy cow. What does that mean? What are the implications for that? Hmm. I'll let you think about it. And this, this fear that God's not given us, this spirit of fear, is very different from what Isaiah 11 refers to when it talks about the fear of the Lord. Maybe some of you are thinking about that. When the scripture speaks about the fear of the Lord, what it's talking about is the awe of God. It's talking about the reverence of God, the respect of God. It's talking about an honor that's born out of an extravagant, self-sacrificing love and affection. That's what the fear of the Lord, the Lord is. It's very different than the fear of man, or the fear of punishment, or the fear of the demonic. More on that, more on this love in, in a few minutes. What has God given us? What has He given us? He's not given us fear. Okay, underline that. Right there in your heart. He's not giving you a spirit of fear. I've lived all over the country. And I've noticed in different parts of the country there are strongholds. In West Virginia, there was a stronghold of poverty. When we lived in the Pacific Northwest, there was a stronghold of depression. Here in, in New York, the stronghold is fear. There's a stronghold of fear. Is it any mistake the terror struck right in our own backyard? There's a stronghold of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. What has he given us? First Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter 1, verse 7, says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. He's given us a spirit of power. The word power here is dunamis. You've probably all heard this throughout the years. Dunamis is, is that Greek word where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive power. If you do a study on the word, in even a, excuse me, a superficial study on the word out of Strong's Concordance, you know that it means um, strength, power, and ability. The power to perform miracles. The power to live a moral life. The power uh, and influence is so associated with wealth and riches. That's what dunamis power is. Strength and resources arising from increased numbers because there's an increased number of people. The kind of strength and influence that comes from a group gathered together. Or the power of an army. That's what dunamis power is. Power to encounter foes and dangers power to bear up on the trials, power to be triumphant in persecution. I gotta be honest with you, I'm concerned about the level of powerlessness, the absence of dunamis power in my own life. I'd like to see more of that kind of power in my life. I'd like to see more of that kind of power in the whole church, especially the American church. I, I'm concerned that we've had so much hype and manipulation 
we've had we've had so much um, um, fake fire that we don't see the real fire anymore. You know, there are professional ministers who know and who have great skill at stirring up a crowd. And after a while, people get jaded <laughs> from it. And they don't expect the real power anymore. That's been my experience. And I think that's my heart sometimes. Anyway, I'd like to see more power. He's given us the spirit of power. I'd like to see more of that power. I think to, to live by the spirit, to live a supernatural life, means that there'll be evidence of the spirit of power that 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God's given us. I want to see more of God's power displayed. More of his actual power. The real deal. What else has he given us? He's given us the spirit of love. Power, love, and a sound mind. He's given us the spirit of love. The word love here is agape. Agape is one of several Greek words translated into English as love. In Christian theology, agape is known as the love of God or the love of Christ for mankind. Agape love represents a divine, unconditional, self-sacrificing, active, deliberate, intentional, and thoughtful love. Best-selling author of The Alchemist and The Pilgrimage, Paolo Coelho, defines agape as the love that consumes the highest and purest form of love, one that surpasses all other types of love. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis describes agape love as uh, what he believes was the highest level of love known to mankind, a selfless love, a love that was passionately committed to the well-being of another. That's God's love for us. Agape is Papa's love for you and for me. It's the extravagant love of God, of a God who's rich in mercy. He's given us the spirit of agape. It's the love shared between the members of the Trinity. It's how the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit and Son love the Father. It's this intimate love that they share with one another, and they have since before time created. And it's the relationship of this kind of love that they share, that they've invited us into. This is why we were created. That we can have fellowship with the Spirit. That we can have fellowship with the Father and Son. That we can share in this love feast that they have with one another. He's given us that spirit of agape. Now I've said since I got here that I want us to be a people who live love. Right? But I'm beginning to wonder... How can we live love if we haven't lived loved? <laughs> if we haven't lived loved, how can we live love? If we haven't embraced fully, if we don't have active and alive within us the spirit of love, 
the spirit of agape, then we're drawn from an empty well. You ever have a hard time living love? I have a hard time living love sometimes. And I don't think the problem is so much that I have bad behavior, but that I have an empty well. And then if my well was filled, if I could live, if I've lived, loved, if I've received love, I've got love to give. I've been a Christian for almost 35 years. I've been married for almost 30. And one of the things I've discovered is that if I'm in a healthy place with me and Jesus, oh, it's easy to love needing. It's easy for me to be a loving husband. It is. But if I'm drawn from an empty well, I could be a real jerk. <laughs> She'll tell you. It's amazing, after all this time, and having such an amazing woman as my wife, that I can still be such a jerk. And I'm a jerk when I'm drawn from an empty well. But when my well is full, when I've lived, loved, when I've partaken of the spirit of agape, of agape, love that's been given to me, my God, then it's easy to love others. It's easy to live love when I've lived loved. So think about that. <laughs> this is what he has given us. He's not given us a spirit of love. He has given us a spirit of power and of love. With all my heart, as the pastor of this church, I want you to know this one singular thing. I want you to know this like you know this like you know this. Like it's written on your heart and you'll never be able to forget it. That your heavenly father loves you extravagantly. The papa loves you lavishly and extravagantly. And he always has and he always will. And it will never change. His love for you doesn't change on your best day. His love for you doesn't change on your worst day. His love for you isn't based on you. His love for you has nothing to do with how good you are. His love for you has to do with how amazingly good he is. He loves you. And I'm convinced that if we can live out of, out of security of that love, it changes everything. It's a game changer for us. If I know that I'm loved by God and it makes me a better husband, if it can change that one aspect of my life, what can it do for the rest of my life? What can it do for the rest of yours? I don't know how long God's going to have me here. I don't say that to frighten you. I'm just saying this. Whatever that tenure of time is, oh God, I want you to know. Guys, I want you to know. That the Father loves you. That he is faithful in that love. And that he, when he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, he means it. When Jesus said, I will be with you always, it wasn't hyperbole. He is faithful to the end. He keeps his promises. He doesn't exaggerate. He's a good God. He's a good father. And he has a great heart for you. I've learned that from a place of security, of that security in his love for me, <laughs> that sin and hopelessness are powerless to have a grip on me. 
When I'm secure in the Father's love for me, it's like I'm Teflon. Sin can't stick to me. Hopelessness can't get a grip on me. When I'm secure in the knowledge of the Father's love for me. And his word says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that he has given you a spirit of love. He's given that to you. He's not given us a spirit of fear. Sin clings to a spirit of fear. Hopelessness, oh my goodness. It's entwined with a spirit of fear. But love, can't get, it can't get a grip. There's nothing to snag on. There's nothing for it to get hooked on. You notice I've been wearing this black sweater lately? <laughs> Sometimes I get cold. It means always hot. I get cold. I thought I lost this sweater when we moved. And they didn't keep the temperature real low in the house. I was looking for something the other day because, man, I'm just freezing. <laughs> Going to the back of my closet, I was like, ah, I thought I lost that thing. I put my hand, you know, sometimes you got to reach in the back of the closet. Ooh, I found that sweater. I thought I lost it. So I've been wearing it lately. But this one of those kind of sweaters, man, it picks up everything. All these little clingy things on it, little white flecks of dust or dirt or something. So this morning before the service started, maybe had the tape out. Shh. And she's trying to get all the, the fuzz off the sweater. That's like the sin. That's like the hopelessness that clings to the spirit of fear. All these little clingy things. Spirit of love, nothing to hold on to. Those things have nothing to hold on to. Nothing will do more to inspire courage, to make a man fearless in the face of danger, or ready to endure hardship or persecution than love. Nothing. History has shown again and again that love for God, love for country, love for family, for a wife and a children, for a home, makes even the most timid men bold when they're under attack. I'll tell you this. If somebody broke into my house and they were going to hurt Nadine and my kids, they'd have to kill me first. They'd have to go through me to get to them. And it's not because I'm a violent, angry man. It's I love my wife and my children extravagantly. I'd never walk down the street and attack somebody and try and kill them. But if they broke in my house and they're going to try and hurt my wife and my children, motivated out of my extravagant love for my family, I'll do incredible things. We can do amazing things under the power of love. Even timid men, even fearful men, can be bold, can be strong, can be more than they ever thought they could be when infused with love. Never underestimate the power of love. And that's what God's given us by His Spirit. So just ask yourself this question. What are you more acquainted with? The spirit of love or the spirit of fear? Why? Why is that? Maybe something needs to change. And one final thing out of this verse. It says that he's given us a spirit. He's not given us a spirit of fear. He has given us a spirit of love, of power, of love. And the last thing is a sound mind. The New King James Version says a sound mind. The Amplified Bible defines it this way. 
as a calm, well-balanced, disciplined, and self-controlled mind. The message simply says it this way, a sensible, that we're sensible, we have a sensible mind. According to Bond's notes on the Bible, the Greek word here denotes a sober mind, a man of prudence and discretion. A state referred to, the state referred to here is that in which the mind is well balanced and under right influences, in which it sees things in just proportions and relations. So under the Spirit's power, we see things differently. We see things appropriately. We see things as they really are. Not as we think they are. Not through the filters that we carry. Don't we all have filters one way or another? Right? If you're a Met fan, you look at the Yankees with a filter, right? <laughs> if you're a Jet fan, you look at the Giants with a filter. We all have filters in life. But under the Spirit's power, with a sensible mind, with a well-balanced mind, we see things clearly, correctly, as they really are. Sometimes I say something to Nadine, I give her a compliment or I express some affection to her, and she says to me, you're just saying that because you love me. And I tell her this, I says, my love for you doesn't make me see less correctly, it makes me see more correctly. It doesn't make me see you in a distorted view, it lets me see you as you actually are. And you're awesome. And you're amazing. Love isn't blind. Love sees clearly. Love sees perfectly clear. On this whole point of seeing accurately, Clark's commentary on the Bible makes this point very well. Listen to this quote. Of a sound mind, of self-possession and government, according to some, meaning this, this sound mind, but a sound mind implies much more. It means a clear understanding, a sound judgment, a rectified will, holy passions, heavenly tempers. In a word, the whole soul harmonized in all its power and faculties and completely regulated and influenced so as to think, speak, and act rightly in all things. That's what it means to have a sound mind. Let me say that again. It means a clear understanding, a sound judgment, a rectified will, holy passions. Passion's a good thing. I like passion. But they gotta be holy passions. <laughs> holy passions, heavenly tempers. In a word, the whole soul harmonized in all of its powers and faculties and completely regulated and influenced so as to think, speak, and act aright in all things. That's what it means to have a sound mind. According to the People's New Testament, a sound mind refers to divine wisdom, to see from God's perspective. A sound mind means to have a divinely inspired mind, not an earthly inspired mind. So, to sum it up, to live by the Spirit then, according to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God's not given us a spirit of fear or bondage or slavery. That's not what he's given us. What he has given us 
is the power of God. He's given us the very love of God. And he's given us the mind of God. And he's given it to us so that we could live by the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. I like to stand and pray sometimes. Lord, I pray for myself today. And I pray for my friends. Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord. And Lord, just like this morning, as you touched my heart and you stirred up what looked like ash, what looked looked like burnt out embers in my heart. Lord, I pray for my friends today that you would touch them with your finger and that you would remove from them a spirit of fear. Remove it. Lift it from every person in this room. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that you would remove a spirit of fear from this church. And Lord, I pray that you would give us what your word says you gave us and that you would give us your spirit of power, that dunamis power would be stirred up in our hearts. Lord, I pray that your agape love, your fatherly affection, your self-sacrificing love, would be stirred up in our hearts, that you would give that to us again. That we would live in the full security of your perfect love for us. And Lord, I ask that you give us a sound mind, that we would have the mind of God. Stir it up, O oh God. Stir it up. Lord, I pray that you would breathe on smoldering embers of past callings, of old passions and dreams. Breathe on them, O God. Let the embers become a flame. And Lord, I pray that that fire would consume, my friends. Do it. Do it in them. Let their hearts burn for you again, Lord. I pray that their hearts would burn for one another again. That their hearts would burn again for what you've called them to. Do it, O God. More than anything else, I pray today, Father, that that my friends would know that you're a good dad and that you love them lavishly and extravagantly. Lord, I pray that they would live in the full security of that love and that love would be so strong in their hearts and so thickly wrapped around them that sin would have nothing to hold on to, that hopelessness, would, it would be impossible for fear or hopelessness to ever have a grip again. Do it, Lord. Lord, I ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen? If anybody needs prayer personally, please come forward. I'd be happy to pray for you today. Otherwise, you guys have an awesome day. Know that I love you.